Sass What is a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, check out sasswhat.com. This is Sass What, a show about Bigfoot. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Mansky, and along with me tonight is someone that I know very well. His name is Andy. That's right. Hey, where's Seth Breedlove, anyway? I think he's heading to Whitehall, New York. Oh, that is correct. In the latest development in the Small Town Monsters universe, Seth and Brandon are on their way to Whitehall, New York, for the premiere of Beast of Whitehall, which is taking place this weekend, uh, to Saturday to be exact, April 2nd. It's uh, taking place at the historic Whitehall Armory. There will be speaking presentations about the New York Bigfoot, Q&A with Seth and Brandon, food. wonder what kind of food that they have at a New York Bigfoot get-together. The only New York food I know is from Buffalo, so probably not from around there. Ooh. Beef on Weck. Beef on Weck would be nice. What's the ice cream is it Anderson's? Anderson's, I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Something with an A. Yeah, we have some good stories about Anderson's, but uh, we digress. So, uh, in, a, in addition to all that good stuff, um, members of the quote-unquote cast will be on hand, including Brian Gosselin, Paul Bartholomew, and Bill Brand. Uh, 3 o'clock, there will be a speaking presentation on the New York Bigfoot Phenomenon followed by the New York premiere of Beast of Whitehall at 4 o'clock, a second screening at 5, followed by a Q&A with the Small Town Monsters crew and some subjects from the film. There will also be vendors. Ooh. Small Town Monsters will have a table. Maz Adams, an artwork uh, extraordinaire worker of art. <laughs> an artist, artiste. if you will. Yes. I'll be there, too. And the Northern Sasquatch Research Society to show track castings and other evidence they've collected. I wonder if they'll produce a body while they're there. That would make for a interesting small-town monsters movie, would it not? Yes, it would. Huge coincidence. Hey, we were just, like, out in the woods. We found this body. You know what? Know something cool that I learned? There is actually in Falk a body found once. Tell me more about this, please. It was a skeleton, and allegedly it was given to Smokey Crabtree. And it was, like, missing a head, hands, feet, like anything you'd need to identify that it was a Bigfoot. I have heard about this. We'll have to ask Lyle Blackburn yeah. the inside scoop on that story when we see him. So, Seth, we are thinking of you and Brandon as well. And we wish the best for you in Whitehall this weekend. Wish we could have been with you, but instead we are here with the Sasswet listeners. And we're going to provide what I hope is a kind of interesting show tonight because we're going to be talking about Bigfoot people. And I'll unpack that a little bit more as we go along. But first, we have some excellent Small Town Monsters news to break tonight. In fact, on Twitter and on Facebook, this news is already out there. Uh, but for those of you who may be hearing this for the first time in regard to Minerva Monster Day and the and the 
accompanying Monster Movie Festival taking place in the town of Minerva, Ohio, September 22nd and 23rd. The keynote speaker and guest of honor has been announced, and it is none other than recent Sasquatch guest, preeminent cryptozoologist, author, and lecturer, Lauren Coleman. Andy, your thoughts? When I first heard this news, I literally fell to the floor. Because it, it's amazing to have Lauren Coleman back in Ohio so soon. After, what was it, last year? He was at OPC? Year before? Year before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, we had met him. I know. It was early. last year. It was last yeah. year, and then it, was it another two years in between? I forget. Because yeah. we had met him years before. Well, yeah, two years before. And it's amazing that he's coming back. It'll be nice to see him again in person. The thing that's awesome is that Lauren Coleman actually taught documentary filmmaking as part of his professorship. So I think he had an extra special interest. In addition to the respect that he has for Seth and the type of movies that he's making, I think he had a natural interest in the movie end of things as well. And and I, I think that helped attract him to be a part of this event. So it really couldn't be better, in my estimation. <laughs> uh, just the thought that he's going to be there and we'll be able to hang out with him a little bit more. I urge anybody who's within range of Minerva to get there. That's going to be a really, really exceptionally good time. And see if you can get there for the Monster Movie Festival part of it, because we're soliciting... Uh, entries for the uh, for young people to make films about monsters and submit those and we'll uh, take a look at those and be sort of a, a panel of judges and we'll award some cool prizes too and uh, have give the the filmmakers some opportunity to talk to some guys who have experience in the field so that's that's going to be a great day Andy anything else you want to talk about Minerva before we move on. Not really. It's just, it'll be nice to be back in Minerva when we head to Minerva Monster Day because it, it will be our second time there because our first time was the first Minerva Monster Day. Yeah. And evidently I misspoke. Um, it is September 23rd and 24th uh, that the Minerva Monster Day is taking place. So make your plans accordingly. 23rd and 24th of September. This September 2016. Um, Speaking of Whitehall, um, I thought it would be a good idea if we just gave our quick reviews of Beast of Whitehall, our reactions, I guess. A review is probably a little too formal of what I want to do with that. But um, let's talk about the movie. Andy, you and I have both seen it. We backed Kickstarter and all that good stuff. Saw a rough, rough cut of it. Uh, some months ago, and uh, I've seen the the actual uh, Vimeo version with Brandon's soundtrack. What were your thoughts when you saw it? I was really intrigued with Whitehall because I don't know if I had heard of the Minerva case before the movie, but I know for a fact I had never heard of Whitehall before the movie. When I first heard they were doing I'm like, What's that? And it was cool to really, when I saw it, even though I had learned some stuff hanging out with Seth and Paul Bartholomew, that 
it was cool to kind of experience the movie as a passerby, passerby would, because I didn't know that much about the Whitehall case. What about Whitehall did you find interesting, the case itself? The interesting part is how it kind of took the town by storm right then and there in the main case, but it was also around before and, of course, after, really. There's like those three or four cases right around that one weekend, but it also was, I mean, before and like right up to today. And I also liked seeing how people, the people of Whitehall reacted to it, because People in Whitehall are different than people in Minerva with how they react to the whole Bigfoot thing. Yeah, I like the Cliff Crook stuff, too. Um, that's, it's not a main feature of the movie, but it's the part of the, the golf course owner. And his portion in the story is really exceedingly strange because you know, he mentions in his sighting that Bigfoot had I-beams shooting out. And that passes by really quickly in the movie, but it is so weird of a detail, and he seems so clear-headed about his recollection of it that it just makes you wonder what was going on there. It seems like wherever a small-town monster movie goes about Bigfoot, there's like this underlying high-strangeness factor with it, too. Like with the Caton's property, like allegedly a UFO landed across the street, They've seen, if you could call them, people that have disappeared, I've heard. And just, like, with Minerva, there is an underlying weirdness factor beyond just this family has had this long history with Bigfoot sightings. No doubt. I mean, even beginning with the two panther-like creatures or whatever they are that has been sighted with the main monster, um, no matter how you slice it, that is just incredibly, I mean, that, that's, that's, out, that's off the charts weird just by itself. And the inconsistencies in the reports is what really makes it weird for me. You know, in some cases, it's like a Bigfoot, like a, if you will, little Bigfoot, with its arms almost touching the ground. In some cases, it's a Black Panther. And in some cases, it's an upright little Bigfoot. So back to Whitehall. What are some of your other impressions of the film? Um, it was interesting to see, like, well, for me, the Adirondacks, which mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen before. And the... The photography in Beast of Whitehall is amazing. I think I told Seth that I that's one of the the strong points of the film. I think even for someone who, as we say in our tagline, is a casual, interested person in the subject of Bigfoot, it's still going to you know whether or not they are persuaded or whatever they think about the Bigfoot content, they're going to walk away from that film feeling like they know what Whitehall is like and what the surrounding environment is like. And there's 
just some wonderful information that's given. And Paul Bartholomew is responsible for part of that. Just talking about how huge the Adirondacks are and uh, the, the, in terms of just like uh, square footage and uh, how, how massive that area is. So that's always a, a factor when we talk about reports of Bigfoot and habitat. And there seems to be certainly enough for something to remain elusive in that massive a, of a sized area. But, the, you know, I think there's the, the natural beauty of that whole region comes to the forefront in this film. Mm-hmm. It seems like with the Adirondacks, if there's anywhere on the East Coast a Bigfoot could hide, it would be in there. Because, I mean, people have gone missing in there. People have escaped in there and not been found. And have been found, but days later because it's so big. It's amazing how it can just... To me, I wouldn't think of so close to Ohio, almost, that it would be like that. One other thing I want to mention is that Brandon Dalo once again provides the soundtrack music, all original, all original music, and um, he. I think he builds on what he started in Minerva Monster and takes it in some new directions, and uh, just is extremely well done. It, it completes the movie, to be sure. It, it it gives it that small town monsters feel to have Brandon's music supporting a number of the themes, and uh, I don't want to say too much more about it. It's better experienced, but what he brings to the table is, um, you know, irreplaceable, in my opinion. So, well done, Seth, Brandon. Uh, Clint did the narration, our buddy from OK Talk. And uh, the whole package is just really, really good. It's, um, you know, it's different than Minerva Monster, that's for sure. And uh, once again, I think Seth lets the story be primary, and let he what, what the great thing about it is he lets you hear the story from some of the principal witnesses themselves and uh, lets you be the judge of what took place out there in Whitehall, New York. Something else I liked seeing in Whitehall was that um, carved Bigfoot, wooden Bigfoot they have in that like park area. I liked seeing that. It was surprising to see how much Bigfoot is acknowledged there. Mm-hmm. I was shocked by that quite honestly, because of the other things that I've heard, you know, that people are so reticent, they do not want to talk about Bigfoot for, you know, fear of their reputation. But it also seems like there is some acknowledgement that Bigfoot plays a part in the history Mm -hmm. of that area. That is a weird thing that they are all hush-hush about it, but they have a big wooden Sasquatch there. Yeah, and in the film, the mayor is... Seems to be, if the funding was there, in support of having some kind of sign that acknowledges, yeah, this is the A Bear Road incident. This is where it took place. So we should have like a big welcome to A Bear Road sign <laughs> that has like a big foot that like is on a loop and it goes up down. You can kind of see him leans in and out of the sign, neon <laughs> with the finger points to himself. <laughs> I'm anomalous. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> let's suggest it. Yeah. See where it goes. All right. Well, we wanted to talk for uh, a good portion of the show today 
about Bigfoot people, and I'm going to define that as the people who are in pursuit of Bigfoot. It, when Seth said, you know, maybe you and Andy should host the show, I started to think of, well, what, what would we talk about? And one of the things that popped into my mind right away is the fact that, Andy, you and I have met quite a few of the modern leading lights in Bigfoot research. So I wanted to get your take on some of those people, your impressions of them, having met them. Some of them you've had extended conversations with. Some of them have just been maybe getting a signature or something in a book. But I just thought that would be a lot of fun. But before we do that, I wanted to zero in on some of the historical uh, big names in Bigfoot research and just go through some biographical information about them. Um, long time ago on Sasfoot, we did a John Green episode. I had a lot of fun getting ready for that show, so I thought we would revive that a little bit. Um, so before we get into my report, I thought we'd start with yours. Uh, Andy, what great Sasquatch researcher did you decide? Well, for which, who did you pick and why did you pick this person? I picked Renee DeHinden, which the reason I picked this, I'll be 100% honest, the reason I picked him was I didn't know a whole lot about him. So I thought it would be fun to learn with the listener. Who would you pick? Or do you not want to get to that yet? Um, let's withhold that information. <laughs> no, I'll tell you. It's okay. Bob Titmus, the un, and somewhat unsung hero, you know, hardcore uh, Bigfoot research um, and readers will know all about Bob Titmus, but for the casual listener, I thought this is somebody who is not mentioned usually in the same breath with people like John Green and Rene DeHinden, so it would be worthwhile to sort of trace his steps. So it's interesting that these are contemporaries. These are people who knew each other that we're talking about tonight. So Rene DeHinden. Mine is short and sweet, I'll be 100% honest. Um, Rene de Hinden was born in Switzerland in 1930. He moved to Canada in 1953. He, within two months of moving to Canada, he first heard about Sasquatch. And in, the, in like three years, he was out researching and interviewing countless witnesses and... Like you said, he knew a lot of the people. A lot of the classics, you could call them, of Bigfoot research knew each other. So he knew John Green. He was he was very good friends with John Green because they were both in Canada. And this is a fun fact that I like. I don't know if anyone else would like it, but he only had one book which, that he wrote, which he co-wrote, which to me is funny. You know, you think of the older classic Bigfoot researchers, you think like John Green, Grover, Grover Krantz, and Rene de Hinden, and it's funny that, to me, that Rene de Hinden only has the one book. Um, something about him is he was heavily involved with the Patterson-Gimlin film. He was the first person to show it in the former Soviet Union, and at one point, he managed to acquire 51% of the ownership rights. And he would, he's, he's known, he, he was known to be a little cranky, you could say. He, <laughs> at one, by the end. Just think, a little but Just bit. a little. You know, everyone knows. <laughs> he just got a little cranky, just like everyone else when he got hungry. Yeah. Well, no. 
Um, he, he was very protective of his research, you could say. Um, he just, I think, would get on people's nerves and... Yeah, I mean, the sad... You can elaborate on Right. That. Well, the sad fact about Rene de Hinden is that ultimately he burned bridges with just about everybody. Because you said, you know, he was friends with John Green, and that's true. Uh, but they even got to a point where, um, you know, the, the friendship was broken to a, a large extent. Uh, you know, depending on what you read, they may have had some type of reconciliation later on. But Rene de Hinden was not afraid to go to a, some of these early Bigfoot conferences and just shout down people <laughs> who were giving presentations. And just and I think even on a, an early Sasswood, Seth put in some audio of that happening where he's just yelling at somebody during their lecture and criticizing their research and all sorts of things. So, yeah, I mean, he was he is known for his cantankerous attitude. Anything else you would like to add to Renee DeHinden? Well, From I've, your vast knowledge of oh, geez. encyclopedic No, knowledge? it's not encyclopedic. But the movie Harry and the Hendersons, the researcher figure, is in part... Uh, largely based on Rene de Hinden. Um, not entirely, you know, it's not meant to be a total caricature, but I think that they got some of the, you know, certainly the uh, ethnic origin and other things about that character from Rene. Other thing, too, that he holds in common with John Green is that they never had a sighting. Cool. Yeah. Did Grover Krantz have a sighting? I don't believe Grover Krantz did. Um, I should have done Grover I'm pretty sure he like did not, did. actually. I like his early footprint research, print research. He has the great line, which I use on some people, with that there's no hard evidence, and then hold up a cast and say, I'll hit you with this and t- <laughs> tell me if it's hard or not, which I love that line because it's like, it's the truth because something has to leave giant footprints. So another thing, Andy, is that he pretty much ended up by himself. I mean, as I said, he burned bridges with his friends, and depending on what you read, it also gives uh, the impression that DeHinden burned bridges in his family as well. So what do you think about a man who basically severs all of his important human relationships to go looking for Bigfoot and to try and prove his existence? The first thought that popped in my head, and I'm being almost 100% honest, is he sounds like Mulder from X-Files almost, to push himself out from society. But What part of that were you not being honest about? Um, all of it? <laughs> no. <laughs> the fact that's, that it was the first thought... That's an incredible thought, intro. The... the, 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 the Part I wasn't being honest about that it was my first thought. The first thought that popped in my head is that he was crazy. Because mm. that's something you not want to do. You want to build those relationships, not burn them. So, and what you're saying is that he wasn't trying to prove Bigfoot's existence is not worth destroying your most important life relationships. Mm-hmm. I think that's a healthy perspective to hold to. But I think that also serves to show the grip that this he had on. Yeah, yeah. It's or the grip it had on him. mm -hmm. It's a little bit like it's weird. I'll say that it's really weird. Um, it's the part that's like 
you almost see it like, wow, he's really focused on this subject. And then you also think about it like, he would rather go out in the woods and look for a creature that no one really knows exists instead of being with his family. It's like, mm, yeah. It's a tragedy almost, yeah, in a way, I would, would say. Make a, awesome movie mm-hmm. that was fake not real and so it's sad that it's right fake. yeah well and then said. what happens at the end of my fictional movie loosely based on the story of renee hinton is that a bigfoot kills him in the woods oh. <laughs> it's like i finally see one and it like oh jumps wow that got dark really fast <laughs> See, at least you could have said it, like, held hands with him, and they walked off into some valley together. And thank Like an Albert Osman situation <laughs> that he willingly went into, but and I guess And then the final not. song, the credit song, is Come Sail Away. <laughs> Come Sail Away. <laughs> maybe it's, like, like, a different version of yeah, it. It's like, right. Come Walk Away. Come Walk Away. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. That is most excellent. It's got way different than my little note sheet. Yeah, yeah. No doubt. All right, well. Now for your two-hour-long thing on Bob. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, um. He literally has it typed out and Hello, highlighted. class. I feel terrible. <laughs> my syllabus today. <laughs> no, I just want to talk about Bob Titmus, who it's very interesting when you start to dig into his, his personal history, there's really two things that you notice. Number one is that a lot of the credentialed and experienced Bigfoot hunters consider Bob Titmus the, the greatest of the 20th century Sasquatch hunters. It's amazing. And that's based on the volume of evidence, largely in, in track casts that he brought in and was able to collect. The other thing that you hear about is um, a lot of sort of your postmodern writers about Bigfoot um, like to paint Bob Titmus in a more skeptical light and imply at the least and and essentially accuse at worst Titmus of uh, faking evidence and doing this, this sort of character assassination that has become commonplace in uh, the Bigfoot world, unfortunately, because you can pick up a book and read character assassination books about Bob Titmus. You can read them about Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin. Uh, you can even read them about John Green, which is um, just baffling to me. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm not even going to entertain some of the um, character assassination stuff about Bob Titmus because I don't believe it's true personally and the reason i say that is not just a a personal feeling that i have but but john green uh, who i think is got to be the most trusted individual in the bigfoot hunt believed 100 percent in bob titmus um and spent a ton of time with bob titmus and i'm even going to spoil one of my facts about uh titmus and green and that is that um Bob Titmus bought a house from John Green and was essentially his neighbor for kind of the last 10 years of Titmus's life. So that's not the type of person who is trying to hoodwink you, I don't think. 
I don't think John Green would maintain some sort of veil of secrecy if he knew Bob Titmus was faking evidence. It just doesn't add up to me. Um, now, that doesn't mean that Titmus may have been, uh, you know, legitimately fooled by a hoaxer. But I don't believe that Titmus was um, intentionally doing anything untoward. So all of that preamble out of the way, um, I, one of the neatest pieces of information, and again, what, what sort of enhances my view of Bob Titmus is John Green's evident um, warmth and respect for the man to the degree that I believe that he wrote Bob Titmus's obituary when he died. Wow. That's how close they were. And so some of this information is from that, or if not from an obituary, from the eulogy that he may have been asked to read at Bob Titmus's uh, memorial service. So here's some of that information, and this is drawn largely from John Green's own writing. Uh, not widely known to the public because he never sought publicity, Bob Titmus contributed more solid evidence for the existence of the creature than any other individual had the most extensive collection of original footprint casts, most of them from tracks he found himself. Now, this is really cool. He had a role in the public debut of quote-unquote Bigfoot in California in October 1958. He happened to be personal friends with someone named Jerry Crew. And at that time, he had a taxidermy shop near Redding, and it was... Bob Titmus that supplied plaster of Paris and instructions for using it to Jerry Crew in order to cast the prints that essentially put the Bigfoot label out there, um, never to be withdrawn. I have a really geeking out smile on my face for everyone who can't see it right now. <laughs> I'm just like, whoa. Yeah, You're so, just like beating mine in the first two minutes. No, so. no, no, no. It's not a competition. But you know, those were the famous 16-inch prints, a picture of Jerry Crew holding those uh, in the newspapers that you know, went worldwide. Uh, a few weeks later, and this is, this is where uh, it really gets John Green's attention. A few weeks later, Bob and a friend, Ed Patrick, blew away the notion that Bigfoot was a freak individual by finding and casting distinctly different 15-inch tracks on a sandbar inside Bluff Creek. So lest anybody think that this was Bigfoot was just one singular creature and that there's only one walking around Northern California, they casted a 15-inch track that had some visible differences. And one of the differences about that is uh, the road tracks were always in soft dirt, but these sandbar tracks were in hard-packed, wet sand, and yet they averaged an inch in depth. And the thing that was so impressive about that is that it required massive weight in order to make that. And, and in one of Green's books, he has this little anecdote about, you know, they jumped off stumps and try, tried to land in that wet sand, and that's the only way that they could make indentations of the same depth. Just walking across the sand normally, they didn't come near a one-inch impression. Um, so the casts that Titmus made then and a year later on the same sandbar are still possibly the best ever obtained anywhere, just in terms of their detail and their resolution, if you will. 
Now, when Tom Slick, the Texas oil millionaire, gets involved with the search in Northern California, uh, founding the infamous Pacific Northwest Expedition, guess who he named to be the leader of that? Bob Titmus. And guess who was ticked off? Renee DeHinden. He was so (laughs) mad because he thought that he should be in charge of it, or at least he and John Green should co-headline. So the fact that Bob Titmus was named, and largely because of his experience as a hunter and a tracker, and of course as a taxidermist, uh, that was how he, he got the call. So that Pacific Northwest Expedition, that's 1959. And if you know the story of the, the expedition, we've done some talk about that on this show, but it fizzled out. And one of the problems was that Tom Slick brought uh, Peter Byrne on board, and nobody could stand Peter Byrne. And that caused Bob Titmus and John Green to just cut ties and go north, go back to British Columbia. And that's very important because Bob Titmus would spend most of the rest of his life there in British Columbia. But in 1959, Bob Titmus did an investigation of an incredible case that I want to represent to you. And this is from John Green um, on the track of the Sasquatch. This is amazing. I just, I was floored by this because it seems like something that I should have heard about before, but I guess not. This was October 1959. Titmus investigates this incident in southern Oregon. First word of it was a newspaper account, um, the following being the version printed in the Portland Oregonian on October 23rd. Roseburg. It couldn't have been an abominable snowman because it was raining at the time. But two boys told police here Wednesday that they saw a 14-foot man-like creature stalking through the woods near 10 Mile, about 15 miles southwest of here. In fact, one of the boys took five shots at the thing, as officers labeled it. Police didn't name the boys aged 17 and 12. The youngsters said they saw the thing twice, once last Friday and once Monday. The boys who said they saw it from about 50 yards away described the creature as being covered with hair, walking upright, and having human characteristics. State Police Sergeant Robert Keefe, Roseburg Patrol Supervisor, said the boys related that he didn't tell their parents about it last Friday, quote, because we didn't think anyone would believe us, unquote. They went back Monday to the clearing near an abandoned sawmill where they first saw the thing. Sure enough, it was there again. The older boy foresightedly had taken along a thirty caliber rifle and fired five shots from less than 50 yards, he told the officers. It ran off screaming like a cat, but louder, the youth said. (laughs) The youngsters said they then found human-like tracks 14 inches long. Police agreed, too. The footprints are large, they said. Sergeant Keefe said he had one of his game officers check the tracks. He said it looked like a bear track or something that resembled it, said the sergeant. There isn't any doubt in our mind that it was an old black bear. But the sergeant's skepticism didn't speak for the hunters of Roseburg, and Thursday afternoon, two parties of them were out working the area with their dogs and rifles. Besides, added the sergeant in his skepticism, they said they shot the thing with a 30-odd six, 180-grain soft-pointed ammunition. I don't know anything that that wouldn't stop unless it would be an elephant, he said. 
It's like I heard one of the guys out there say, well, gee, I think it's time we telephone the papers and tell them the flying saucers are around again, Keefe said with a laugh. But when he asked the boys, could it have been a bear, the boys replied that it couldn't have been, that they had seen bears before. Besides, those footprints showed five toes and no claws. Police said they would continue the investigation. So that's right out of the newspapers, 1959. And what Green goes on to say is that Bob Titmus was on the scene just a few days after the incident. He found that the newspaper had missed some important points of the story. Only the younger boy had seen the creature on the first day, and the 17-year-old had recruited, he had recruited to accompany him in looking for it again was a hunter in and out of season who reportedly always shot deer in the head so he wouldn't spoil any meat. So we're working with a, a hunter who knows what to do. On the second day, the boys saw the animal down below them in a valley and saw... Okay, this is the part that made me want to relay this story. Okay. On the second day, the boys saw the animal down below them in a valley, and it saw them up on the ridge. It immediately came after them, appearing on their level with startling speed, but then approached them slowly, swinging outstretched arms as if it sought to herd them ahead of it along the ridge. That is so cool. Yeah. They ran, but the older boy paused several times to pump 30-odd six slugs into its chest. He could, (laughs) listen to this, he could see the impact as he hit the animal. And once it went down until its knuckles hit the ground, but it kept coming and did not seem to lose its composure. They were running and did not see what it did when it stopped following. Bob checked the area and found tracks that confirmed the boy's story of their own and the animal's movements, but the tracks of the creature did not resemble those he was familiar with at Bluff Creek and did not accord at all well with the boy's estimates of its size. The front of the tracks was as big as anything he had seen before, with five large toes spanning eight inches, but the rest of the foot narrowed quickly and it had a total length of only 11 and a half inches. The tracks sank an inch into the ground in places where his own tracks did not show at all. Going up the hill, there were tracks as deep as 14 inches in wet ground, where Bob, by jumping down, could only make his heels dig in two or three inches. In the meadow where the thing was first seen, he found a bed area 12 feet in diameter, which had a very strong smell to it. When he challenged the boys of their height estimate of 14 feet, they demonstrated that they could judge the heights of other things in the same range with consistent accuracy. And Green concludes by saying, that was our first experience with the track that varied substantially from the Bluff Creek or Ruby Creek pattern. And although many strange tracks have been photographed and cast over the years, there's never been another quite like those at 10 Mile. That was cool. Isn't that an amazing case? It just sounds like the Bigfoot wants a hug. Whatever it is. He's like putting his arms out and he's like, I want a hug. He races towards them to get, a hug. to get a hug. And what does he get in return? Shot in the chest. Yeah. The weirdest part is the footprints. Mm-hmm. How they like are wide and then narrow. And that just doesn't seem to be a big enough foot to support a 14-foot tall creature. I'm seeing like so. I'm seeing like a mighty Joe Young in my head, mm-hmm. like King Kong. Because mm-hmm. I mean, the interesting part about that is the boy seeing Im- the impact and the 
thing we don't hear that often is the Bigfoot truly reacting mm-hmm. to being shot. Which we normally don't get. We usually get, it was shot at, stood there, walked off. Mm-hmm. But it's just interesting because even though it was repeatedly shot, it was fine. And then somehow, this sounds, might sound weird, it let them get away. It gave up, essentially. Because, yeah. I mean, it went up a ravine, we hear it fast, really fast. It so. reminds me of that scene in Boggy Creek, where the young hunter boy shoots a Bigfoot and drops it to its knees, and then he runs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that same, it's an unusual case where there is a reaction on the mm-hmm. part of the creature. I mean, it's knuckles touch. That's an interesting thing that... This sounds so weird, but that it would fall down and put its knuckles down instead of its hands. So, sorry. No, no, that's good. So, um, the way that Bob Titmus's life then unfolds is that, you know, they got tired of Peter Byrne and the stuff going on with Pacific Northwest Expedition. So, uh, Bob goes to British Columbia because he heard that there was some a lot of Bigfoot action up there, which there was at the time, and that move ended up becoming permanent, and he actually became a Canadian citizen as well. He uh, ended up spending a lot of time on a boat of his and concentrating some of his research on a place called Clem 2, British Columbia, which is about a 15-mile-long island, a very rocky, almost mountainous, and there, there seemed to be lots of Sasquatch activity around there, especially on the beaches, where they found a lot of tracks and a lot of the First Nations people had stories uh, that they were willing to share. Um, But there is also some heartbreak here, some tragedy. Um, The casts that he made during that period of being in British Columbia and so forth uh, were lost when his boat that he spent an awful lot of time on uh, caught fire and sank. There's all this great evidence that mm-hmm. was simply was lost to time. Um, in 1977, while he was clearing a homestead near Hazleton, he was notified that some boys had found tracks close to the Skeena River at Terrace, was able to get two superb casts of 15-inch tracks there. Um, when Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin claimed to have filmed a female Bigfoot at Bluff Creek in October 1967, Bob came down to the first public showing in Vancouver, British Columbia, and then went on down to California, where he made casts of eight tracks at the film site. He was the first investigator to go there, and what he found left him totally convinced that the movie was genuine. Most of his investigations continued to be in British Columbia, and he became a Canadian citizen, as I said, but he returned to Bluff Creek for several months in the fall on a number of occasions. And here's the thing that's so amazing about him. Was successful in finding tracks there several more times, once getting casts of both knee and hand prints. And see, it's his ability to get this evidence that I think raises huge questions. And the folks who like to come at this from a, a very skeptical slant have a field day with that because they think nobody gets tracks like that all the time, who's not hoaxing. That's what I first thought when I heard you say got tons of evidence himself. I'm like, that's interesting. But then the second I heard he was a taxidermist, I was like, well, if he's hoaxing, why doesn't he he just make a body and say 
that's a Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. Which it seems like if someone was hoaxing, they would make a, eventually they would make a body. Especially when you could, when he could. You could go, I shot this Bigfoot and here's its body. Too bad I already threw away all the guts. <laughs> yeah, and that brings up a, an important point. Bob Titmus, you know, in the whole pro-kill, no-kill debate, was very unapologetically pro-kill. I mean, his stated goal was to collect a specimen for study. So he was truly hunting Bigfoot. And all the other evidence that he collected and obtained was a byproduct of that hunt. But he was out to get Mm -hmm. a body for scientific research. So that's an interesting parallel with what you just said, because... Yeah, if he was hoaxing, you would think that that would be the ultimate quarry, and why would he waste time mm-hmm. with some of these peripheral things? So that's that's needs to be said about Bob Titmus and John Green is the same way. And it's just a matter of fact that they are they wanted to get a body and bring it in and prove that this was a real creature and. Um, there's another thing that he was known for. He collected some brown hairs um, from bushes and branches near Bluff Creek. Uh, according to John Green, uh, uh, eminent scientists tested that, and uh, they proved to be from a higher primate. The, the scientists limited the possibilities to human, gorilla, or chimpanzee. Now, the skeptics and the character assassins like to say that it was moose hair um there's a problem with that there's no there's no moose native to north northern california um now a person could say well he's a taxidermist and he could have easily gotten his hands on moose hair if he wanted to and i suppose that that's true so once again conflicting stories but if i'm going to tilt in any one direction it's in the direction of what green has to say now, another thing that sets him apart, Titmus, that is, is that he had his own sightings. Two, to be exact, uh, one was during World War II from a ship in Alaskan waters. That is so cool. Isn't that something? <laughs> it, I don't know anything about it, except I would assume that he would have been offshore and would have seen the Sasquatch on a beach or something. Which seems to be... Not to be jumping in, seems to be a pattern with unexplained things in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Which I'm just saying, like with the whole giant bear thing and and with Bigfoot, there's a lot of reports from that area, like the Northwest and Alaska, that it's from a boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's an interesting parallel with Titmus's own life because in his, in his later years of active research, he was doing much of it from a boat you know, and looking Mm -hmm. for tracks on the beach. So it just sort of seems like bookends almost to his life. Here's the other one. Um, Three dark bipeds scaling a cliff a long way off near Kitimat. That's even cool. Isn't that that a wild-sounding sighting? Let's play the, what's the better Bob Titmus Bigfoot sighting, is it? From a boat? Well, and that one, I should say, also was from a boat, too. So both of his sightings were from a boat. (laughs) Which is really cool. Which almost seems like maybe psychologically that's the only way he could see a Bigfoot. And mm-hmm. that may have been why he spent so much time on a boat. 
Good night, everybody. <laughs> no, yeah, that's awesome. That's that's great. Excellent insight there. <laughs> Few last things here. Bob's achievements were recognized by the International Society of Cryptozoology that made him an honorary member in 1987, the first person from the United States to achieve that distinction. Um, he suffered a back injury in 1962 and unfortunately was hobbled by severe pain for over 30 years. And so this is kind of a, a neat thing. His last trips to Bluff Creek were in 1994 and 96. By then, he was unable to go very far from his car at all. But on his last search along the sandbars of Bluff Creek in the late 1980s, he was able again to cast several tracks. But because it was getting dark, he did not attempt to take them out at that time and left them buried under a tree at the film site. He has never been back, so if anyone can find the right tree, the casts may still be there. So, you want to stop the recording and go to Off Play? (laughs) (laughs) And one last thing is if you go to the Willow Creek China Flat Bigfoot Museum, um... You know, his American material, it's all there. And in a sense, that's essentially, it was built to house Bob Titmus's collection. So that is absolutely, without a doubt, a road trip we must take hey, someday. Yes. So that's my report on Bob Titmus, and that leads <laughs> us... I told you it'd be a half an hour. Well, I said two hours, but... But it's an, he's an amazing person, and to John Green's point, he's not well-known because he never wrote a book, and he never went on TV um, to get his name in the papers, which is, again, to me at least, that suggests that he wasn't a hoaxer because hoaxers hoax in order to get attention, and he steadfastly avoided attention, except within the circle of the very small circle of Bigfoot researchers that he trusted. So I think that he um, deserves a lot of props. So that leads us then into sort of the home stretch of the show. And what we're going to do is just spend a little bit of time talking about the Bigfoot people of today that we've had some personal contact with. And I'm going to keep my remarks to a bare minimum. I'm going to let you, Andy, have the most say. So, Bigfoot people that you have met at conferences and so forth, what are your thoughts on Tom Powell? Tom Powell was, I want to be honest, I think the first Bigfoot researcher that I heard a presentation of theirs in full. And so it was really cool to hear his words and stuff. He was the first person that I met that really stood up for not calling them Bigfoot, if that makes sense. Um, He was, and another thing I noticed about him that I enjoy is he was another of the, he was one of the people that kind of introduced me to high strangeness with the whole like zapping and stuff. I had never thought of that, and I was like, well, why can't that be true? So I was very 
enjoyable to hear him. Because I think, now I think about it, I think he was my first Bigfoot researcher that I heard their presentation in full. Stan Gordon. Stan, on the topic of high strangeness, is an amazing guy. He is one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, we are now on a first-name basis with him, which is which blows my mind. Um, like most of the time, sometimes we don't even like go up and say hi to him. He comes up and says hi to us, which is amazing. And his presentations are always very well thought out, but he's the type of researcher that doesn't really, and this is a good thing, share his opinion. He's a lot of the time, here's what the people said, here's about the area, here's your book, which I like that type of book. David Floyd. David Floyd is one another very nice person that I've met. Um, something that I liked about hearing him talk, talk was his talk on the Green Man, which outside of, I don't even know if I had seen the, I don't think I'd seen the British Finding Bigfoot episode, but it was outside of that, he was the only person I've heard talk about the UK Bigfoot. And how it's not just like sightings of it walking across the road, really. His talks are about it in the myth and lore of over there much more than it is over here. Because, I mean, they have all those stories. And cool part to me is like that there's Green Man stuff in cathedrals and stuff over there, which is awesome to me. Renee Holland. Renee Holland is one of the most amazing Bigfoot researchers out there because we've met her twice and both are finding Bigfoot tapings that we've been a part of. And it's interesting because she's so open to like the kids. And part of it, while I'm always like watching her interact with little, little kids, is the funny part to me because she's a skeptic. And how she can interact with those little kids who are all pro-Bigfoot is very interesting. Cliff Berrickman. Cliff Berrickman is one of the smartest Bigfoot researchers out there. Um, we've seen him talk at OBC. And his talk and his show, um, Bigfoot Road Trip, is really amazing because it Sounds kind of weird, but it reminds me of the TV show Mythbusters sometimes. With how he, like of a big, like of a photograph, he goes in, counts the how many pixels high it is, and then uses the math of how far it was and all to figure out like that it was seven and a half feet tall, whatever this blur on camera was. And he spent a lot of time talking to you before the Jurassic. Park taping. Yes, that was something cool. It was, it was just amazing because he spent time to talk with me, which is interesting. It was like he wanted, it almost seemed like he wanted to talk with me, which was cool. Lyle Blackburn. Lyle is a really cool cryptid researcher because 
a lot of people nowadays in the Bigfoot community see him as like the Boggy Creek guy, but it's interesting to hear him talk about like the Lizard Man and stuff like that, which it's cool to see that he does, he's a rare Bigfoot, if you will, researcher, because he does have like the strong tie with Bigfoot, but he's also very into another cryptid. Paul Bartholomew. Paul Bartholomew, my experience with him was awesome because when we met him, he was at, we were at the Sosby Bigfoot Conference and we were recording, I don't know what um, Monsterland Ohio radio episode it was, but we were just recording and Seth comes and sits down and then Paul Bartholomew comes and sits down and I think that was cool to talk with him. And he's a really down-to-earth guy. And he's another researcher that's like, here's the facts, here's about the places, and you tell me, really, what you think about it. Lauren Coleman. Probably, right now, the best Bigfoot encrypted researcher we have. Because she is... He's almost to two ends of the spectrum because he, he's not just Bigfoot, he's cryptozoology. He, the way he writes is, all, is that here's the evidence stuff, but he's also telling you theories and stuff of his, which I also enjoyed reading. Yeah, the it was one, amazing to meet him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I and. I'll out about that day. Yes. And the thing that I will never, ever forget about that is by the second day, he was calling you by name. Uh, that, that was a, you know, priceless moment. I don't want to say too much. I'll get misty-eyed. What was it? I forget the number now. But I was so impressed to meet him. I got, what's the number? I think five or six things signed by him in like, Three days, and he didn't mind. <laughs> yeah. He's like, here's this postcard I found. Sign it. It's like, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, and one more. Bob Gimlin. Bob Gimlin. Meeting Bob Gimlin and hearing him talk is the reason I believe the Patterson-Gimlin film is real. The thing I always say to people is, if the Patterson-Gimlin film is a hoax, Bob Gimlin didn't know. Because the way he tells it, you believe him. And he's also, it's kind of funny, because what is he, in his 80s? And he's just all for taking pictures with people and stuff. And he's he's one of the wildest guys out there. He'll just take pictures with you. He's like, do you want a picture? I'm like, okay. It's amazing. His story is the best, the way he tells it. And to think, without Bob Gimlin, Patty would have never looked at us. Because he, like, rode across the creek, and that's why she turned around. So, it's amazing. And, I mean, he's so sincere. Like I say, if a PG film was a hoax, he didn't know. 100% he didn't know. And there's no special effects that will ever look like that. Unless it's from... The future. future. (laughs) You know what's cool is the Bigfoot world has been very, very good to you. I mean, just sitting here 
reminiscing with you. We didn't even talk about Jeff Meldrum. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's no time to even do the whole list, but it they've been the Bigfoot world has just showered you with kindness, which is so awesome and so rewarding. And I think, you know, one thing that I know Lauren Coleman has stated is one of his goals is to awaken in kids in the next generation, not just interest in cryptozoology, but interest in biology, interest in geology, interest in sociology. I won't go into my whole life story, but I'm also now sort of interested in a career path that is looking into things. And see, I think he would say, you know, ball game (laughs) at that point. Mission accomplished. Very cool. So a couple things because we're out of time here up against it. We, uh, Andy and I, host another podcast called Monsterland Ohio Radio. We actually took over Saswat once already informally. And you can check us out at monsterlandohio.blogspot.com. And our episodes are linked up there. And our Twitter handle, Andy? At M-O-R podcast. That is correct. And we just kind of do fun stuff over there. It's nothing real heavy like our most recent retweet was Julie Adams screaming. It was a retweet of retro horror. And so it's Julie Adams screaming and the creature kind of wrapping her up in the that hug. So um, <laughs> follow us there if you want some more of this. Uh, this program, of course, is Sasswat. And you can check us out at sasswat.com. Our Twitter handle over there is at Sasswat Show. And that's a very active account. Bigfoot Bookworm is always recommending stuff, and there are links to episodes of the past, so on and so forth. Andy, it's usually my job to outro the show, but you have the concluding thoughts tonight. I just want to thank you for listening to me and my dad talk about interesting Bigfoot people. Um, the Bigfoot world.